All right, so we are uh, in our fourth session in our series on covenant theology. And I don't know exactly how today is going to go because, um, well, I've been traveling, of course. But uh, also, I want to kind of circle back around. A lot of you were absent two weeks ago. And not only that, but we didn't get through what we discussed two weeks ago. So I want to circle back around and kind of talk about what we talked about two weeks ago. And so if you were here, there's going to be a little bit of recap on that. Uh, but I want to remind you of our overall goal, of course, as we get started. Um, we're, we're taking a brief look, a brief overview of covenant theology. We're not going to dive into a lot of details, but I want to give you the big picture perspective so that you know what it is and why it matters. We want to understand what it is, why it's taught in Scripture, and what bearing that it has upon our faith and practice. That's our overall goal in this study. And this morning we're going to look at how we can further that goal by looking at the various positions in contrast to covenant theology. But also to recap a big picture here, remember I've spent the last few weeks arguing that covenant theology seeks to understand the big picture of Scripture, the theme, the motif of Scripture. What is God's plan from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22? And I've made the argument that God making a covenant all throughout redemptive history is the way in which He reveals Himself to us. It's the way in which He relates to us. It's the way in which He defines for us how we relate to Him. He defines our relationship with Him. Covenant is that key to not only understanding God's purpose and plan, but also our part in that purpose and plan. And it's when we approach Scripture in this way that we have the proper context for understanding the most important issues in Scripture and in the Christian life. Something that I hope to expound upon here in the next few moments. So that's, again, the big picture of what we're doing and why. Where we're going, what we're trying to defend. Today, I want to revisit various other views on redemptive history. How other perspectives, other traditions, approach these same things. And we talked about this a lot last time. There's a lot of question and answer so I'm going to circle back around. If you have any more questions, we'll deal with those. But I do want to get to kind of why or how Reformed Baptist covenant theology is in contrast to these other views. Is that clear? And again, I will say, maybe not again, but I will say that I'm going to give a brief summary of this right away. And then we're going to spend the next four to six weeks unpacking what I'm going to say today. So I guess another way of putting it is I'm going to dive in kind of deep in some areas today. And a lot of it, if you're not familiar with these things, might go over your head. But I'm, what I kind of present to you today, just kind of throw it out there, I'm going to unpack in the next few weeks. So if you have some questions and you're not getting some of the concepts today, that's fine. Uh, Hopefully we'll get to those things. So I want to begin with why it matters. It's kind of in reverse, but why do we care about other various views in redemptive history? That's what I want to start with. Why it matters. 
Why it matters is, and if you were here two weeks ago, this is recap. Why it matters is we must answer the question of what is the purpose of the Old Testament? How do those purposes of God, excuse me, how do the purposes of God from Old Testament to New Testament fit together? And that's important because everybody has to deal with the Old Testament. It's 75% of your Bible. What is it there for? Why do we even have it as part of our scriptures? How do we apply it? When we get to Leviticus in our Read Through the Bible in a Year program, what are we to do with all this strange stuff? Or can we just skip it and get to the good stuff? Skip straight to Matthew 1.1, right? Everybody must answer the question of God's purposes in the Old Testament and how they fit with the New Testament. And whether you realize it or not, whether you can identify with one of these traditions I'm about to go through or not, you have a way of answering those questions too, whether you know it or not. Break this down a little bit more. What is the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament? Why are they so different? Does the Old Testament matter in our day? Is it applicable to our lives? Is it just character sketches? Is it just... Um, stories uh, to show us God's power? Um, Is it law for us to obey? Uh, All of these questions are important. They come up. So why it matters is why we've got to define clearly how we relate to these things. So different approaches. I mentioned these again uh, two weeks ago. Two opposite extremes here I'm not going to cover. Some throw out the Old Testament altogether. Marcion was a a second century heretic. He accepted Jesus in the New Testament, but he held that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate God than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. So he essentially just cut out the Old Testament. doesn't matter. It's an extreme. Some see no difference whatsoever. Christian Zionism. They advocate following much of the Old Testament law, even some of the the dietary and the cleanliness laws. Basically, there is no difference between Old Testament and New Testament. So those are the two extremes. Throw it out or make it all one and the same. But in between, if you'll remember, I put up this graph. Aspect ratio. You would think with some computer science people in this church, I could get some help here. It looks fine on my computer. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That was a joke, Nathan. (laughs) It looks fine on my computer, but this, this dispensationalism gets cut off. This graph here, discontinuity. It means we're going to emphasize... The differences between Old Testament and New Testament. Continuity, we're going to emphasize commonality. And we see this spectrum all the way on the discontinuity would be Marcionism, of course. There's different gods. So there's, you know, Old Testament and New Testament are completely different. There's Reconstructionism on the other side of this. Or I should say Zionism is to the right of this, but 
Reconstructionism is, is um, a little bit closer. It's, you know, the commission given to Israel in the Old Testament, the theocratic kingdom to, to build and to conquer uh, is given to the church as well. And so all of, uh, a lot of the Old Testament laws are brought into the New Testament. For example, um, the death penalty in the case of adultery should be the law of our land. Um, things of that nature. But in between, you have the more mainstream views, at least within Reformed theology. Quotations there. New Covenant theology, Presbyterian Covenant theology, I should say dispensationalism as well, and it's no accident I put Reformed Baptist Covenant theology right in the center. Like, perfect, right? (laughs) As if this graph is in Scripture. This reveals, obviously, my perspective. I see Reformed Baptists right in the middle. So I want to kind of briefly summarize these views again and give a defense for why I'm I'm putting Reformed Baptists right in the middle. So, dispensationalism. Remember, dispensationalism I'm putting here pretty far on the left on the discontinuity side. Dispensationalism is a way of reading Scripture. And how they read Scripture, before we get into all those details, I guess the most important thing to say is, I'm answering the question of how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other. Dispensationalism makes a division between God's plans and purposes for the nation of Israel and God's plan and purposes for the church. That's how they read Scripture. Thus, the Old Testament concerns Israel. The New Testament concerns the church. In the future, God will turn back to Israel and fulfill the Old Testament promises. And that's the relation, that's the question I'm answering here. That's the relation between Old Testament and New Testament that they make. Does that make sense? It's like, okay, Old Testament and New Testament, what is the relation between the two? Well, the Old Testament is really dealing with Israel, a nation, The New Testament turns towards Gentiles. And so there really isn't a relation right now. They're completely different right now. That's why I have them remember on the discontinuity side. They're completely different right now. But in the future, God will turn back to Israel. And that's the relation. That's how the Old Testament and the New Testament is related. Because when God is done dealing with the church, he's going to rapture them out before the tribulation and then the millennium. That's when he's going to deal with Israel. So effectively, this cuts off the entire Old Testament as relevant to us. 
Because it was written for the Jews who were awaiting God to rapture the church and then turn back towards them, rebuild the temple, reinstitute the Old Testament law in some respect, and Jesus Christ in bodily form is going to rule from this physical temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Does that make sense? Questions? Comments? Kim? So what would a dispensationalist say to that last statement? Well, what would they say? They would argue that it's relevant in different ways in which we would. It is helpful. It gives us wisdom, insight, direction, reveals the character of God. But when I say effectively cut it off as relevant, I'm meaning particularly that it has any sort of instructive or authority over us as directing our character, our obedience. Um, and even more so, the classic dispensationals would argue even the promises of the Old Testament are not for us. They're for Jews. They're for the nation of Israel. Some of the more progressive will say, okay, well, we're kind of caught up in those promises in some respect, even though they're primarily given to the nation of Israel. But ultimately, even the promises of the Old Testament are made to Israel, not to us. You're not a Jew. I hope I characterized that right. Any other comments, questions there? Let's move a little closer to the center now. New Covenant Theology. What's New Covenant Theology? New Covenant Theology is an attempt, it's a recent development. I mentioned this last time. It's... um, Really, no more than a generation old. It's not a view that has any sort of um, tradition in, in the church. It's a very recent phenomenon. And it is essentially a response between the two extremes. Here's dispensationalism over here, and here's Presbyterian covenant theology over here. New covenant theology says, okay, let's chart a path right down the middle. So they would put themselves in the middle, where I put Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology in the middle. It's kind of a halfway house, though. They do see one plan of purpose of God from Old Testament to New Testament. In contrary, in contrast to dispensationalism. They see that Israel is the church as covenant theologians do, in contrast to dispensationals. Remember, dispensationals, God's plan for Israel is different than God's plan for Gentiles. New covenant theology says, no, 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 no. We agree with our Presbyterian and covenantal uh, brothers and sisters that Israel in the Old Testament, the, uh, excuse me, the Gentiles are grafted into Israel, so there's one plan and purpose of God, one people of God. And so they don't buy into the rapture, the millennium, the thousand years of peace, God turning back to Israel, all of those things. 
So they're similar to covenant theology here, um, though I will say that it is defined much differently and doesn't end up, in my opinion, being one plan and purpose. I'm not going to get into all those details, but I'll leave it at that for now. It's similar to covenant theology here. But another thing is that they usually, they tend to deny the categories of covenant of works, covenant of grace, any sort of pre-fall arrangement or covenant with Adam. Remember I told you a few minutes ago that some of this might go over your head. I haven't defined these things for us yet. So I'm going to get there, but I'm going to just throw it out there now just so you know where I'm going. If If you don't understand these terms... Hang with me. But they usually deny these categories. And what I'm saying is, this has implications for a distinction between law and gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, just look at our liturgy. We have a reading of the law, a confession of sin, and then a reading of the gospel. This is intentional because... The law, we believe, is given to point out our sin and to drive us to Christ and to direct us in Christian living. The gospel is not something we do. It's something that God does for us. It is an announcement. It is a pardon. It is what Christ has done. You are simply to receive by faith. And that's built upon a foundation of how God has dealt with His people with mankind through covenant. But if you deny that God deals with God's people through covenant in this way, then you kind of open the door for law becoming gospel and gospel becoming law. I know some of you are nodding and some of you are like, okay, I'm not getting there, but is there any questions I can answer in regards to that? I'm going to get there, but I'm just saying they differ from traditional covenant theology because they deny these categories and they end up having implications. Cody? Yes. Absolutely. Um, Easy way to put it. If you look at how God deals with the nation of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, if you don't recognize that God is dealing with them in a works type of relationship, it's very easy for you to bring that into the New Testament and make that sort of same type of behavior and relationship with God characteristic of this age. Do this and you will be blessed. Don't do this and you will be cursed. Um, also in New Covenant theology, they argue that, all, that the New Testament abolishes all of the Old Testament law. Uh, this too effectively cuts off the entire Old Testament as relevant to us. So they have a similarity with dispensationalism here. They deny the perpetuity of God's moral law from Old Testament to New Testament. That is, Reformed theology typically sees that God, in His character, in His holiness, in His morality, in His requirement of men, 
what, what He requires of men is the same across all covenants. They deny this. They say, okay, Americans, for example, are not bound to obey the laws of England in the same way that New Testament Christians under the New Covenant are not bound to obey anything from the Old Covenant. Now, we may look to the laws of England to help us understand our own laws, to give us wisdom, but they don't have any authority over us. It's a take-or-leave-it type of relationship. Old Testament, doesn't matter. There's nothing in the Old Testament, unless it's repeated in the New Testament or commanded in the New Testament, nothing in the Old Testament um, has the authority over us to instruct our behavior or to reveal sin to us. Now, typically, would you say that they would hold to the Ten Commandments, but then outside of that, like no. case, really? They deny the Ten Commandments as well. The Ten Commandments, essentially, unless they're repeated in the New Testament. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, is repeated in the New Testament. So on that basis, they say, yes, it's applicable. But the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath, gone, doesn't matter. Even the Second Commandment, the Third Commandment, don't make graven Im- images. Um, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which we understand has to deal with not just you know, speaking expletives, ex- expletives, but has to deal with just the reverencing of God um, in life and in worship. That's why they, for example, they deny the regular principle of worship as well. Those things are built, excuse me, the regular principle is built on those first four commandments. Who to worship? First commandment. Um, how to worship? Second commandment. The manner in which to worship? Third commandment. And the time devoted to worship. The fourth commandment. They deny those. So under that understanding, it doesn't going to church on Sundays Yeah, it's optional. Um, now I will say that you know they do point to the fact that in the New Testament we're exhorted in Hebrews ten not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And they say it is wise, it is necessary, it is good for a Christian to gather with other Christians um, and not to forsake that. But when that is and how often is, it's up to you. So they have characteristics of a Pharisee in that they are like literal and like, you know, this and that. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say it quite like that, but yes. they are associated with biblicism. Very strict. Read, if the scripture does not explicitly say something, um, then we can't infer that meaning. So, in other words, they don't look at the scripture theologically. Which, yes, is a characteristic of Pharisees, but it's a characteristic of us all in certain places. You know, it's very easy to say, I don't agree with that. And so, it doesn't, scripture doesn't say it explicitly. We all do it. But yes, it's more pronounced in their tradition to look at it very strictly, biblicism. The Bible must explicitly say. Because like, for example, the the fourth commandment, it's not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, a lot of the emphasis in the New Testament is on how the Sabbath does not apply to us. 
Reformed theology, though, sees this as the Jewish Sabbath that doesn't apply to us and all the theocratic national laws that went along with that. But they see this, uh, we see this abiding principle that there's still a day, the day that Christ rose, a day in which the church gathers, a day that's called the Lord's Day, a day devoted to worship and not uh, work. Um, they still see that day appearing, not an explicit thou shalt, but it appears in the examples and the theological implications of the New Testament. Presbyterian covenant theology, very similar to our own, sees one plan and purpose of God from Old Testament to New Testament, so that's how they answer that question. Generally speaking, in contrast to New Covenant theology, they do affirm the categories of covenant of grace, excuse covenant works, covenant of grace, a pre-fall covenant works with Adam. I say generally because there are others in the tradition, John Murray, for example, who denies that the covenant arrangement with Adam was a covenant of works, and I would say that has very, very dangerous implications for law and gospel distinction. We'll get into that. But I'm saying that, in generally speaking, this is what they hold to. So they uphold the law-gospel distinction, generally speaking. But again, that's got to be a qualified statement because they do see the Mosaic arrangement as God dealing with, uh, as a covenant of grace, which bleeds over into our new covenant age, which again has some implications we're going to get into. They do uphold the perpetuity of God's moral law from Old Testament to New Testament because they do see this one plan and purpose. But the difference is they blend together the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. And they view the Jewish nation and the Christian church as virtually the same thing. A people of God consisting of believers and their seed, which is why they baptize infants of believers. Does that make sense? That's why they fall on the more continuity side rather than the discontinuity side. They view our arrangement right now in the New Covenant through the lens of the Abrahamic Covenant. Or in other words, they view the Christian church as in the same position as the Jewish nation. In the Jewish nation, there is a mixture of cult, which is religion, and culture. Right? The law of God was the law of the land. Baptists make a distinction between church and state. There is a difference between the laws of God and the laws of the land. They see them as one and the same. Or let me put it another way. The kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. That was the kingdom of God. That's where His worship was, His promises, His people, the temple, the sacrifices. That was the kingdom of God. 
And it was visible as a physical entity. It was earthly. It had a location. If you wanted to be a part of the Old Covenant, if you wanted to be a part of the promises of God, and you were, for example, um, from Syria, you had to renounce your citizenship and become a citizen of Israel. A nation with an army and a king and a constitution, the law of God. That's how you became a part of the kingdom of God. They take that same understanding and now say the church represents that kingdom of God. Whereas Baptists say, no, the kingdom of God is spiritual. And you enter that kingdom through the new birth, being born again through belief and faith. And it is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical earthly kingdom. They see the continuation of an earthly physical kingdom that is the church, which is why you can be born into it. And which is why you can be born and be a member of that spiritual kingdom, excuse me, of that um, kingdom of God, the church, and not really be a true believer. Which is why baptism is given not really on the basis of a profession of faith, but on whether you fit the right categories to be a member of the kingdom. So, again, my, my, what I'm trying to do is show that the relation between how they deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament. They blend things together. So much so that the church is essentially Israel. They're one and the same. They're identical. Questions? I really got to move. <laughs> We're going to get into this more. Just letting you know. Chris? Yes. Yes, I will say though that recently there's a phenomenon of Reformed Baptists going on the theonomy route and I don't know why because it's so inconsistent with what we believe about who makes up the people of God. But yes, generally speaking, theonomy and Presbyterianism, church and state mixture, in fact, infant baptism, I would argue, really came, of, came to be most prominent because um, of the church and state relation. They saw the church as a nation, just like Israel. And so infant baptism was your birth certificate into that nation. All right. I'm going to take maybe eight minutes here. Again, I didn't get through it all. Man. Two key texts to remember as we... That I want, to, I want these texts to stick with you as we evaluate these things over the next few weeks. First, it's the one that I um, broke down three, four weeks ago. Titus 1-2, where Paul talks about the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. That's the one plan. Before the ages began, God made a covenant with His Son, to give eternal life to a people. The other text to remember is when Paul speaks of how Gentiles were at one time strangers to the covenants of promise. That is a Reformed Baptist text right there. And I'm going to show you why. 
Think of these two texts in relation to what our confession says. The confession, when talking about the covenant in chapter 7, verse 3, says this. This covenant, now, um, it's talking about the covenant of grace. I haven't defined the covenant of grace yet for you guys. So for, for now, just take it as the hope of eternal life that Paul speaks of in Titus 1-2. The covenant of eternal life. All right, This covenant is revealed in the gospel. That's where we see the hope of eternal life. The gospel. But it is revealed first to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps. Think of like a ziggurat, like steps leading up to a pinnacle. By farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant, which is revealed in the promise, and then discovered and completed in the New Testament, it is alone by the grace of this covenant that everyone, fallen of Adam, were ever saved or obtained life and immortality. What am I saying here? The hope of eternal life is revealed to Adam. Recall here Genesis 3.15. The... um, Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel, right after the fall. I will put enmity between the woman, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We learn from the New Testament. We learn from Romans chapter 16 explicitly. We learn from all over the place. This is a promise of the Messiah to come who will crush the head of the serpent, and who will reverse, and not just reverse, but will go far beyond and grant something, uh, give, uh, accomplish something far beyond what was lost in Adam. So they're saying that this hope is revealed to Adam. This is where it first appears. This is God's one plan which appears right away. But afterwards, it was revealed by farther steps. There's more information given. And that's where I want you to think of this phrase in Ephesians 2. Covenants of promise. Abraham, we get more information. Okay? There's a land and a people here. There is a race through which the seed of the woman will come. And then with Moses, there's more information. There's a law that this... Messiah will obey. There there is a structure. There is a sacrifice that He will fulfill. And then with David, there is this, this seed, this Messiah will be a king and He will rule and He will conquer. So there's progressive revelation here. And these covenants represent more and more and more and more information. It's like a, a seed, like you know, the seed of a tree planted in Genesis 3.15, or even before that, in, in, in ages past, Titus 1.2, it begins to grow, 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 and expand. This is the progressive revelation. So it's revealed more and more until the full discovery was completed in the New Testament. This is the new covenant sealed in Christ's blood. That's the full discovery of it. 
That's when we know Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. That's when all of the types and shadows come to completion. And so the implication of this was it was incomplete before this. Before thus. Before the new covenant was sealed in Christ's blood. It was incomplete. And it's only by this covenant that any are saved. All of saints from Old Testament and New Testament are saved only by the grace of this one covenant. What does that mean? They were not saved by the Abrahamic covenant. They were not saved by the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant. They are saved by the new covenant. Move quickly here. So contrary to dispensationalism, there's one purpose to all redemptive history. The hope of eternal life. And there's one way of salvation as well. Saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament were saved by the one and the same covenant, by faith, through sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints were saved by placing their hope in the Messiah to come. In the New Testament, we are saved by the Messiah, placing our hope and faith in the Messiah who came. Great analogy here is, I heard one time from one of my former pastors, is um, there were 31 people in a line to get ice cream. And um, the man who was paying for them all was right in the middle. The first 15 came up to order their ice cream and said, he's going to pay, pointing behind Then the guy came and paid, and the last 15 then say he paid, pointing to the guy who already paid. It's the same relation to the Old Testament New Testament. There is a Messiah who will pay. He's coming. That's where my hope is at. Now we look back and say there is a Messiah who came, and he paid. And on that basis, I have a right and claim to hold on to God and the promises of God by faith. Contrary to New Covenant theology, this promise is embedded in the Old Testament and bursts forth in the New Testament, so we cannot cut off the Old Testament as not applicable to us. Because the one and the same promise appears, is being furthered. The Old Testament is the structure which prepares us, prepares for and supports the promises of the New Testament. And I would say that this typology allows us to properly navigate the continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament without throwing it all out. It's not two different plans, two different laws, two different standards. It's the same promise. It's the same moral requirement. It just appears in different forms, given in different, to different people at different times. Contrary to Presbyterian covenant theology, this purpose was only promised in the Old Testament. It awaited completion in the New Testament. Covenants, plural, of promise. In other words, it only existed as a promise in the Old Testament rather than a reality. The covenant with Abraham Moses, David, did not bring or accomplish salvation. And that is where our main differences are. They look at the covenants, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, 
as the promise itself. The completion of the promise itself. Yes, but they are covenant. Uh, the confession says, the Westminster says, there is, one, uh, there is one covenant of grace with multiple administrations. The covenant of Abraham was an administration of the covenant of grace. The covenant of Moses was an administration of the covenant of grace. We say, no, those are typological covenants that consisted of a promise until the reality came, which is why we, can't, we do not look at the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant as a paradigm for our own covenant, which is what Presbyterian covenant theology does. The Abrahamic covenant for them governs everything. It was believers in their seed. That's why there's believers in their seed in the New Testament. The Abrahamic covenant governs everything. We say, no, there's no forgiveness promised in the Abrahamic covenant. There's no eternal life promised in the Abrahamic covenant. There's no blood that was shed for the sacrifice of sins. There's no pouring out of the Spirit. Thus, the promise cannot be equated with the reality. Um, I've got to wrap this up. One last analogy here. Recall the scaffolding that I talked about uh, a few weeks ago, right? Um, that which is being constructed is the one and the same promise. The building being constructed, contrary to dispensationalism and New Covenant theology. It's the one and the same promise. But the scaffolding is not itself the promise. It falls away when the building appears. And this is contrary to Presbyterian covenant theology. It awaits completion in the New Testament. All right, I got to end there. We are way out of time. Um, any last minute questions or comments? One quick idiotic question. Yes. If we were to put John McCarthy in a little box, where would he fit between New Covenant and dispensational? He calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. Right, so like on, on your map there, where would he fall in? Between dispensationalism and New Covenant theology. So more to the left. He rejects a lot of the tenets of classical dispensationalism, but he retains their basic overall core beliefs and distinctions. So he is a dispensationalist. But um, he calls himself leaky because he's admittedly inconsistent. Even his study Bible um, upholds the Ten Commandments as kind of instructive to us. Not the fourth, but the others. And um, <laughs> that is, um, that's not in accordance with dispensational tradition. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and guide us into your truth. Uh, Lord, how prone we are to follow what we want to believe. How prone we are uh, to see only what we want to see. How prone we are to exalt ourselves above others as if we are right and others are wrong. Uh, Lord, we are aware of this natural tendency. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace to be humble. Uh, Father, that you would give us grace to receive truth even when it conflicts with what we want or have always believed. 
And we pray, Father, that you would, despite our differences, give us the grace to love and to serve others, even when we differ with them. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts to worship you with your people, to receive the preaching of the word, the administration of the Lord's Supper with faith to the salvation and strengthening of our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.